0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the special series on the New Books Network that's about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, host of the series. Today, we'll be talking to Sam Sarma about his book, Writing Support for International Graduate Students, Enhancing Transition and Success, published by Routledge in 2018, and part of the series Routledge Research in Writing Studies. 170 years ago, at a time before the Civil War, before the Civil Rights Movement, before the current civil unrest over the economy and COVID and racism, a student from Macau studying at Yale College, a certain Young Wing, wrote a former classmate requesting he send the answer keys for the college's Latin and Greek books. Some things never change. Studying abroad Whether that abroad is seen through American eyes and means Europe, Asia, the world, or that abroad means studying at Yale, at Stanford, at any of the numerous state universities across the country, studying abroad is always a challenge. But how so precisely? This is what Siam Sharma's book, Writing Support for International Graduate Students, shows precisely the various ways that international students experience arriving in America, and orienting themselves to American life, can be described by the responses these students unintentionally provoke. It can be as simple as, but as aggravating as, people insisting that they say gas, and not petrol. But it can be as grave as, and as worrying as, harmful practices, such as ethnic stereotyping, accusations of plagiarism, and just flat-out discrimination. U.S. higher education needs to know more about and to do more about international education. That is what Sam Sarma contributes towards in his book, Writing Support for International Graduate Students. And Sam Sarma knows what he's talking about because he has talked, talked in a tremendous number of interviews to many interviewees at a great number of higher education institutes across the country. The book is data-driven and it proceeds from a solid base in the constructivist version of grounded theory, and it builds upon that base by employing the techniques of institutional ecology. We know truly more and more precisely about graduate studies, both domestic and international, because of the work of Sam Sarma. Associate Professor and Graduate Program Director in the Department of Writing and Rhetoric at Stony Brook University, Sam Sarma studies academic writing and communication at the intersection of the arts and sciences. He's a former lecturer at the Tribhuvan University of Nepal, and when it comes to international education, he's been there. Sam Sarma knows firsthand studying and researching abroad there, outside the U.S., and studying and researching abroad here, inside the U.S. The research into graduate education is yet young because even the decades of work done by applied linguists needs first to be brought in line with the profession of writing studies as the profession is practiced today. As Sam Sarma writes, combining intellectually and politically savvy approaches to research and scholarship that is guided by ecological views of academe and our profession will best help us advance our profession and contribute to graduate education. Young Wing at Yale College all those decades back has since been followed by many another student from abroad. It's good for them, and it's good for American higher education that we have scholars like Sam Sarma working to improve the institutes where international graduate students study, where they take their degrees, and where in many cases they stay to teach and to research. Scholarly Communication, this special series on the New Books Network, is the podcast about how knowledge gets known. We talk to educators and to editors, to writing academics and to reading academics, to those identifying with scholarship and to those identifying with communication, and of course, to those identifying with both, because scholarly communication aims to be the plus sign between. Scholarly communication is about scholarship, about the research, the work, and the instruction in writing. And scholarly communication is about communication, about the selection, the production, and the dissemination of knowledge. Wherever writing and knowledge connect, there the communication of scholarship is taking place, and there, too, we at Scholarly Communication have our place. So let's begin today's episode. Sam Sarma and writing support for international graduate students. Sam, welcome to Scholarly Communication.
1: Hello, Daniel, and thank you very much for inviting me to this wonderful conversation. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yes, I am too. Um, a really great read and interesting book. Interesting also because it comes, uh, from you. That that mark is made in the preface. You give your own background. Um, and it's clearly a topic uh, that that you're passionate about. I, I wonder if you could tell listeners, please, um, about your own. Well, let, let me put it this way: w- What brought you to writing this book?
1: Um, thank you. So. I am an international student like many others who would not have been able to pursue higher education had it not been for the public education systems of South Asia first in India where my family had moved to um, find better opportunities economic opportunities and then back home in Nepal, the tiny little country where in spite of everything public education was still intact for, um, and then, when I came to the U.S., I came here to pursue a Ph.D., which was at the time not available in Nepal. And during my own transition, I realized that there is more to the adaptation, transition, uh, the learning curve than a lot of available scholarship research uh, you know, shows. And therefore, um, I started off by uh, building on my dissertation in which I had investigated how engineering professors and their students conceptualize language and writing and how that conceptualization, how that perception affects and shapes their uh, teaching and learning of written communication as scientists. And so uh, when I joined Stony Brook University in 2012 as a full-time assistant professor, I wanted to build on that project. At first, I was going to just uh, go to a few universities and interview maybe a sample of 10 or 15 students and 10 or 15 scholars, Um, but then I realized that, you know, in order to really make uh, any uh, sort of claim or or conclusion or inference about the current uh, practice of how international students are supported during this transition through writing research and communication skills, especially language and writing. Um, I realized that I would need to go a little further and I went further and further and further until I reached uh, 20 universities in person and collected data uh, distantly from 15 more with 35 universities um, in the data set, um, 600 something thousand word transcript of 200, nearly 200 interviews, um, including about uh, nearly a dozen uh, group interviews in addition to individual interviews. And, quite a few follow-up interviews it was a massive undertaking which really was a had a hard hit on my health uh, during the 2014-2018 four-year stretch Um, and the the reason again that i wanted to study this subject is to really uh, find out more um, as to like you say uh, said a moment ago how the current practice actually measures up to the theoretical literature in in our field And I wanted to report and theorize and and share perspectives and invite more conversation on the topic.
0: Yeah. um, So that's dedicated research. (laughs) You say even over those years that it it, it bit into your health, if you like. Um, I can only imagine when I looked at uh, the universities you were going to and how um, much time you must have spent traveling and and tracking people down and planning interviews, um, just that side of it, never minding the actual research side and the writing of it. I mean, um, it was impressive. Mm -hmm, Thank you.
1: Yeah, it was Um, um, writing that, you know, I I was on planes and hotels and traveling all the time, especially of the year 2015. I was nearly never at home. Um, It was like one place after another place after another. And I used to spend two to three days at at an institution. Oftentimes, I combined them in a stretch of the Midwest um, or the stretch of the West or the stretch of the South. But oftentimes, it was just one institution that I flew flew into.
0: You know, um, this isn't necessarily pertinent, but it it interests me. Out of such a research experience, did that change your view of what you were looking at? Did you gain by traveling in such intensive manner across the country and seeing so many people, did you gain just from that experience itself? Any insights?
1: Yes. Um, There were sort of marginal side issues that came up. For example, when I entered a university, I started becoming conscious of their architectural design and as to how those particular designs may afford particular kinds of interactions. And it turns out there was research on that topic, right? But for me, as a person, personally encountering university landscapes and where the writing center is situated, where the international students go, whether they're visible or not, whether the architecture allows uh, certain modes of advocacy and agency for uh, these particular student groups. It was all very telling, um, as well as the you know, institutional location in terms of finance and, uh, and, and empowerment and whatnot. Yeah, so there's a lot of other personal growth aspect to the you know in doing the process of the research i got to appreciate a lot more of people beyond my discipline in fact i found a bunch of paradoxes such as writing teachers being unsophisticated about writing uh, compared to language teachers oftentimes and vice versa and i was like what is going on right so it turns out that this the, the attention people pay when they think they don't know leads to fascinating forms of support and understanding uh, similarly, I was surprised by how very established writing support programs um, were m- less effective than uh, the far less established uh, sort of informal networks and ecological spaces where people were just coming together to help each other. So I kind of theorized from the second as to how the first might function, like how a non uh, sort of structured, non formal ecology of rich support systems that is not so developed might actually offer perspectives to the more support, you know, develop more evolved support structures. In other words, how can the building uh, itself, you know, be ecologically sustained in a space that is not too structured, but instead still remains organic and natural.
0: That's really fascinating, especially what you say about, uh, and this definitely comes out in the book as well, where you talk about more innovative approaches, more openness to uh, trying it differently. Uh, Mm -hmm. Theorizing as you practice and so on. Uh, When you you say, for instance, the more successful, more well-known centers weren't necessarily reaching the results with international graduate students or perhaps even graduate students in the domestic context that uh, more uh, recent uh, additions to the field were. Could you, could you, uh, I know we're jumping up into later chapters in the book, but could you speak actually on that particular topic there? What is it about the established versus the becoming that seems to make it so that the, the becoming has more to offer?
1: So universities are networks of specializations, AKA silos. And these specializations have ways of creating boundaries, you know, around them, um, certainties, um, resistance, um, entry barriers, obstacles, right? Not intentionally, but it's a side effect of um, specialization or, or even hyper-specialization. And therefore, they may create a certain process, procedure, tools, methods, uh, approaches, and believe in them to, to a point to where they create a lot of blind spots. And they don't see how simply asking a student, what do you want to work on at a writing center? The student may not, or not all students may be able to answer that question, right? The idea that students agency and student centeredness is so important at the writing center, it is, but some students might really not know what they want to work on. They have written and they might want the writing specialist, the tutor, the writing consultant to maybe point, you know, locate a, uh, you know, a space where they could go deeper because that person may actually be looking for an open conversation uh, over their writing, right? Right. Um, so that's just an example of how creating a particular ideology so to speak um, around a profession around a practice around support uh, can actually create blind spots um, and open mindedness and flexibility uh, are um, elements of what I call the the broad ecological landscape uh, rather than you know established structures which may be more limiting um, and so we've got to borrow um, these elements of you know, chaos or um, flexibility, or fluidity, uh, evolution, change uh, from outside of and, and you know well-established structures constantly.
0: And and as I understand you, it really does come down to engaging with the person across from you. Yes. Uh, if 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 I might uh, just briefly, uh, my Please. father was in um, public education at the uh, middle school level for over thirty years. And towards the end of his career, he landed in a school where he was allowed the space to have small classes, longer classes, neighborhood kids, mm. and he was able to build relationships with these children. And he saw how much more they learned. And again and again, in your uh, book, you point to this idea that it's about not following, as you've just very well put, uh, dogmas, mm-hmm. ideologies. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, succumbing to your blind spots, but. Just really trying to get the job done. Uh, Does that sound true to you? Does that seem to be one of the cruxes of what you're finding in your research?
1: Oh, what a great example! I mean, you know, your your what your your father uh, did is it has been you know shown um, not so much in research um, on academic writing and communication, but more in other fields. That is why I borrow from sociology. I borrow from philosophy Um, when when it comes to these kinds of going outside of the structures, right, built structures, um, and understanding how the space for experimentation, space for exploration, space for community-based programming, um, you know, outside of the structured institutional spaces, can actually be the place, the lab that we need to set up, and maybe we should bring those. Dynamics into the structured built spaces, so that um, we are constantly pushing against the tendency, our own tendency to become complacent, our own tendency be to to create, you know, channels that do not allow creativity um, and and resistance and whatnot. Right. So that's a, such a wonderful example. I think as much as possible we need to either go out of built structures and explore things before we can bring something back, or Disrupt build structures creatively, not you know disrupt as in the industry lingo, um, so that we can we can stretch them or make things flexible or make things more com- complex. As one scholar in my discipline calls it, complexifying. Paul Kimatsuda, complexify.
0: This this brings me. I keep jumping ahead into the book, but it doesn't matter. We'll 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 find our way through uh, most of the mm-hmm. material. But I, I it, but what you're saying makes me think of uh, the wonderful article that you cite in your conclusion about how writing teachers can help revolutionize higher education by Benice Widra, and uh, how you say that uh, this. Writing itself, writing centers and 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 writing instruction is is particularly well positioned to do the sorts of complexification that you're talking about, because mm. it's about thinking and communication. And then it's about anything else that could be called a discipline, let's say, yes.
1: um,
0: or at least when it's done quite effectively. So it's probably not by chance that you hit upon writing support as as the, one of the focuses of your study, is it? Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. That essay, that actually a blog post in a humble blog, that's not been even the standard research based article or anything. Right. Became quite a hit among writing teachers in 2017, I think, um, because it spoke to, yes, to an extent, to our own sense of pride in our discipline, a little bit of disciplinary ego. But also it spoke the truth because it was written by someone who was in, you know, publication and in uh, publication industry in the library in literacy support. And so when she saw, um, you know, people talking about revolutionizing education, I think that was after the years when the MOOC had become so dominant. Right. And it, it's tiresome when people just come up with this idea that other people had been implementing for like 40 years, like flipped classroom. Like we've been flipping classrooms for the last flipping forty years um but uh, but, uh, but and so when people come up with this idea and sound like they just discovered YouTube in twenty twenty uh it's it's tiresome, right the thing is, and then when when we saw that it was like, yeah, um we have been uh people at the front lines of the post civil right movement making sure that our students are able to read and write and research and communicate and engage in academic uh, discourse. We have been at the forefront of supporting international students to transition and adapt um, you know, into a different academic culture and as well as social culture. So, yes, I think writing teachers are, um, you take that with a grain of salt, because I'm, I'm a writing teacher, but are positioned to actually um, rethink, um, challenge, complexify, explore, Um, give really personalized, you know, show how to do personalized pedagogy, Uh, they are on the forefront of uh, pedagogical educational innovation. Um, Precisely because they can, they make interventions on a daily basis. um, And in in ways that the personal contact, the smaller classrooms, the, um, you know, the process-based education, uh, the, the the philosophical and theoretical pedagogical methods of uh, student agency uh, really afford uh, that kind of change and challenging of the more you know rigid uh, modes of education. Yes.
0: And your research here, uh, as you say at a few points in the book, is really a new line of research. There is clearly backing it up a lot of applied linguistics that has been going on, as you mentioned, for decades, especially taking in international students and helping them learn the language. But uh, when it comes to graduate studies and when it comes to writing support, we're talking about research that is at best, what, a decade old, if I I read things correctly.
1: Uh, the, yes. The thing is, um, the language focus, both within linguistics, of course, and, and in writing, is, um, has been rich. Um, to the credit of my applied linguistics uh, colleagues, um, they have actually addressed a lot of issues. In fact, they have is- addressed issues about writing often t- about when it comes to second language writers, oftentimes in more sophisticated ways than writing teachers themselves. However, the focus on language uh, among both the linguists and the writing rhetoric scholars has been slightly problematic, as I say in the book. On page 86, I have an image. Um, imagine that there is a, a, a sort of an iceberg with a tip showing at the top where it says language problem. Right. But the international student is all, all the rest of the iceberg. You see a language problem when you see because that's the only way you've learned to talk about the international student. So you're basically to define an international student by language. But the international student is not only a linguistic being. The international student is also a speaker of other languages where they don't have the same kinds of challenges. The international student is a communicator. So they have a whole lot of, you know, compositional skill sets. They may not have the compositional or rhetorical or communicative skill sets that you are demanding right now. And then underneath that, the deepest part of the iceberg would be content knowledge, right? Sometimes when you ask your students to write a a paper on something and they seem to struggle with their language, it's not because it's just the language. If they understood the topic and if you do a better job of helping them to understand the topic with the same amount of English language, they would be able to write a much better paper especially if you also uh, pay attention to dimension two, the rhetorical skills, the communicative skills. So the fourth dimension is the context. Sometimes students have a good enough English language. Someone may be from Britain. Okay. They have good enough communication skills. Let's say they also understand the content. What if they don't understand the political, social, philosophical, historical, emotional, psychological context? They will not be able to write a good paper, Right. And then therefore, finally, the the other side of the iceberg is confidence. You maybe not see when you see the iceberg from one side, even the other tip, which is confidence. So maybe you can start addressing the challenge of the international students from the other end or from the deep end, right? Um, So for those of us who understand there's more to it than what we see, language is only a visible tip of the iceberg. And therefore, we really need to go. Um, beyond that. And that's my sort of beef, so to speak, with applied linguists and writing teachers
0: um, uh, alike. Yeah, it leaves, um, (laughs) I mean, at least four parts out of five out of the picture, doesn't it? Mm -hmm.
1: Exactly. Exactly. One, because it's on the other side of the visible tip, tip, um, because you're looking from one direction and the other three probably because of the weight of the iceberg.
0: Let's talk, uh, if we could, though, uh, a little bit more about graduate studies itself and this line of research that, uh, as you say, you've 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 been enriching the applied linguist, the writing studies side, but uh, you also say that when it comes to this fuller perspective, this, mm-hmm. say five dimensional perspective mm-hmm. of a person, which is <laughs> just what education needs, mm-hmm. uh, that the research is quite young, quite new. Um, what is it that has been done so far, and what do you see? Has I mean, maybe even apart from your study. Clearly, your study is going to be what we'll we'll be talking about. But also, even apart from your study, that has been achieved so far. What what have we learned?
1: So there is an extensive lit review at the end of uh, chapter one, right? And so what I have done is to uh, draw a very simplistic Venn diagram in which I say, so this is the part where um, students are seen. Uh, linguistically, and therefore you define them as international students, as second language, English as a second language speakers. Um, this is the part where they are grappling with their, um, you know, the, I think in second chapter two, uh, grappling with the academic transition. So this is the part where the social cultural uh, landscape is being addressed, right, as the students are seen from in the social cultural landscape. And then I, I sort of keep going with different bodies of knowledge. And One of the things that was really interesting that even as I was writing the book, starting to write the book in 2014, uh, sorry, researching for the book in 2014, uh, there was a new community. There is now a new community of scholars, at least uh, mainly centered in the the United States, uh, is the Consortium on Graduate Communication. These are scholars who specifically focus at the graduate level um, and, and they focus on writing and communication and language support. And many of these scholars happen to have come from second language, um, you know, writing support background. And within the CGC, then, there is a group of scholars who are now advancing these notions. I'm thinking about scholars like Michelle Cox at um, Cornell University, who has been writing extensively about not only international uh, students, but also about agency, right? Um, In fact, I um, build on her notions of agency in the book. So there is a uh, new body of knowledge scattered across the fields of, uh, you know, like language and student agency and transition and uh, pedagogy and research. But there's also a risk, as I discussed it in the same literature review section, which is a lot of times you start a program uh, for international students and because of a lack of resource uh, budget for domestic, separate budget for domestic students, And because those same concerns are also relevant to domestic students, the domestic students end up coming in droves into the program for uh, writing or language or communication support for uh, international students. Um, And then the program now becomes a sort of the universal design program. So you try to find common ground for both students, which is great, which is amazing. But then you might either forget that this program was designed for particular needs of particular groups of people with additional challenges, unique sets of challenges. So now uh, the system changes to accommodate for everybody. Instead of, I'm not saying that you should always segregate international students and create specializations. In fact, I'm against it, right? Right. The problem, however, is how conscious does the staff, how educated does the staff remain about these three other dimensions that are unique to international students? How is research on these students or support for these students or budget for these students or space for these students or privacy, whatnot, is uh, how much of it is available, continues to be available. So it's like You build a program, everybody comes in, it becomes a bland, vanilla, everything goes program, right? And you build another one and you have to accommodate and it goes on. So this is also pointing to a a second problem, which is graduate education in the US at least is organized by these many disciplines and there is no central mechanism of support. Writing centers, which are centrally organized, often do not serve these students. So you end up having students just You know, in those silos of departments and specializations across campus, oftentimes hidden in, you know, basement, you know, underground labs. They're there for a long time. And it takes like two years, three years often to even realize that they need to improve their language. They need to become conscious about communication in actual context to network and to go for professional development. And 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 what is happening is that by somehow creating very small amounts of spaces and then also inviting everybody into them and then finally forgetting that the program was designed for, originally designed for a group of specific group of people, we are actually messing up and not serving, serving neither the international students nor their domestic counterparts. Well, there must be both, both specialization and intersections, right? Some programs um, or any programs. Must have a segment of where there is a, a s- enough space for international students to be served in ways that they need additional or unique support. So, so I, I raise this question. Critical, I, I critically review the literature, and I say, listen, we have worked for a long, long time, but for some reason, we seem to keep creating confusions. One of the confusions that really stick in my craw is this metaphor confused as the reality. The writing scholars in the you know, graduate writing uh, uh, community often say academic writing, advanced academic writing is a second language for everybody. And I'm like, oh, my God, what a terrible way to approach something. Yes, it is. But for some, it's literal. And for others, it's your damn metaphor. Just just a metaphor. Right. And so we really need to understand that we address the literal as well as the metaphorical common ground.
0: That, that that question there uh, this idea of the metaphor because i've i've heard that also myself so often that it's a second lang- it's nobody's first language uh, academic english or mm-hmm. academic writing is is really a fascinating question and I'd, I'd like to just follow up on that to hear more about what you think because i often hear this how should i put it that people feel like scholar uh, scholarship is first, the content is first, the science is first, and it gets packaged up in language. Mm-hmm. So it's almost as if it's a process that if you like, uh, if we had good AI in a few years, we could get done that way. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that anyone believes that, but it seems mm-hmm. to be sort of the mode of thinking. And yet it seems that people right away, first off, always recognize the language. They see it as academic English. And when it's done wrong, they see that it's not being done right. So in other words, they seem to be almost contradicting themselves in saying the language is secondary added on, but it's one of the first or major problems when the research isn't good.
1: Um, So I guess (laughs) that's a fascinating and very interesting, important question. So the metaphor that sec, you know, writing at least advanced uh, genres of advanced academic communication are um, second language to everybody comes from uh, this idea, as you are suggesting that um, the, the, the language part of it is uh, something everybody has to grapple later on, right? Like you first figure out the ideas, you dump the data, you um, write up the, you know, well, write up. Um, you have the methodology, everything. And then when you start writing, you're basically translating thoughts that are already in place, right? And in that process of translation, that language part is something all of us have to grapple. Maybe that's where the intersection lies. Maybe where that's where the problem, lies, uh, misunderstanding lies. But in reality, both. So, so especially for the international student and to some extent for the domestic, the native speakers, Um, language is, and writing is part of the entire process. Like as you start taking field notes, as you start writing up lab, uh, you know, results, um, and all the way to reading and annotating sources, to uh, drafting an outline or taking notes, reviewing and collaborating, critiquing and revising, editing and proofreading. All of that process actually embodies ideas in language. So the language embodies ideas. In fact, there are two theories in writing studies. One is called the, as you probably know, one is called the writing to learn. And the other one is learning to write. The learning to write is something that you can take students out of context and teach how to write. But even then you're trying to do, get something done, right? But, and and that's writing across the curriculum as we call it in the United States. But writing to learn is what happens when people are actually doing learning or Communicating, they're writing to communicate. They're writing to learn. They're writing to, you know, you know, uh, uh, write a paper or build a project design or something. So they're using writing to get things done. Ultimately, in the in the disciplines, um, writing is getting things done. But that getting things done does not happen as if the tool and the thing that you're doing, going to trying to do with the tool are separate. The tool and the task are one to a great extent. You see what I'm saying. Like you cannot separate the dancer yes, yeah. from mm-hmm. dancer from the dance, as as the the Irish poet uh, W. B. Yeats would would tell you.
0: Yes, so yes,
1: because yes. you cannot separate the dancer from the dance, it means that you, um, it, it the dancer brings in a lot of these other issues that are not linguistic. The the student's identity and confidence, the student's background and knowledge, the student's understanding or misunderstanding of context. And therefore, when you position an international student a, and a domestic student, you only have a Venn diagram where some of it overlaps. Over time, a lot of it may overlap. But if you look at a new international student, you got to see that not a lot overlaps. And therefore, in the zone X and zone Y, in, you know, that don't overlap versus the zone Z that does overlap, you've got to understand really the Y is the wild zone where the international student doesn't understand what's going on in the class or in the community or in the discipline, right? You've got to address that. And in order to address that, you can't simply talk about language in isolation. You cannot, you know, separate language as something that they will deal at the end of the paper writing process. They have to begin with it. And the process is not the same for the domestic and the international. And to try to find some metaphorical common denominator and confuse that metaphor with a literal you know, a, a process by which the international student goes through that process is maddening for someone who actually lives through that process, right? It's like, no, that doesn't capture what I went through.
0: Yeah, This is yeah. your language I w- I w- and I'm
1: trying to speak it. So stop telling me that it is the same for me.
0: I wonder if it comes from this idea, this this confusion of the metaphor for the reality. I wonder if it perhaps comes from the experience that domestic students, so let me just focus then just on language one English speakers, mm-hmm. have when they start to learn how to speak and write in their discipline. I mm-hmm. think the experience is widely felt as one of neutralizing their personality. Ah, and and I've and I've heard this and from other uh, from other corners as well, and they and they feel that well, if you're doing it right, it doesn't matter who you are. Does mm-hmm. does that uh, perhaps? And yes. I, as but, I said, I'm coming up with this as I'm listening to, uh, to you speak. I, I wonder if that speaks to some of the misunderstanding. I think so.
1: I now I can't you know I, I can't really relate to that personally, like you probably could or. Like if when you grew up in the United States and you were learning the language and and also the the academic language, but I can look at it from the lens of my children, right? 12 and 10 right now. So they have a certain advantage compared to the child of an immigrant who just came and joined his school. I can see the difference. It's, it's, you know, it's not rocket science. Whereas my children speak the language of academe because that's what they hear at home or because they speak the language of the culture and, and society because that's what they hear in the community. They have that, all that sort of repertoire of linguistic, communicative, cultural, social advantages when they use the language and their writing. So there is a lot that they can draw upon from the community. That's why relative to the you know, middle-class white American students, uh, European-American students, whose, whose language aligns better with the academic language, the, the students of color from the same community find it a little more challenging. And to say that, just because there's some common ground means that it is the same for both is mattering for the student of color because in the small, slight difference of one word choice, of one syntactic difference or an accent or an attitude that they face, there lies, you know, make it a break in situation as to whether they can continue and they can succeed and they can feel that they belong to that space, right? These small matters of linguistic and, and rhetorical differences actually have to do with who belongs where, whose knowledge counts, and how you position yourself, and how you're trusted, and how you are, um, you know, respected or not. So there are so many implications, especially during these times of, you know, division and hostility, xenophobia, um, and prejudice, that that push back against the need to pay attention, pay attention to the specific needs and unique demands of the different groups of students. Is just tone deaf.
0: Hmm. I mean, it 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 does seem, and if you when when you talk about it now, it just does seem so obvious. I mean, there are certain uh, sectors of society who are just a heck of a lot closer to academic English in their own yes. backgrounds than not, yes. and whatever their experience of writing that way happens to be, their step toward it is shorter. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, I would like uh, to maybe get a bit more into graduate uh, students and international graduate students. You give us a, a good picture, which all of our listeners might not actually even know about, of who these international students are and also what graduate studies actually looks like at our American universities. Could you perhaps describe these two things for us, please? Uh,
1: that's a very good one. Um, when I was using the Venn diagram, simple Venn diagram um, approach, you, you know, this is not even a sort of the kind of sophisticated tools that I would need because I don't know how to build them, right? Maybe one day. But a simple overlap that you mentioned a moment ago, how much of the overlap exists and who and where and how do we need to address the non-overlapping versus the overlapping? Now, if you try to define the very term international, it's complicated, right? I was teaching down in Kentucky due to my master's and PhD. And when I said, how many of you are international students, the hands would go up, either clearly up or down. When I came to New York, I asked the same question and I felt like, oh, my God, half of the students, you know, who were international raised hands. You know, let's say out of 20 students in the class, four of them raised hands, five raised hands. And the four or five of them were like just looking at me thinking, what is he asking? Right. They may be undocumented. Are they international? They may be they may have been here and they already got their green cards or their citizenship. Are they international? They may have been born here. And like one Pakistani American student who raised her hand half and said, can I? And I'm like, yeah. She said, I'd like to be an international student for the purpose of this conversation, because um, I'm a binational. I'm interested in different, you know, Pakistani culture and American culture. I, I consider myself an international student. And I'm like, um, okay. So I stopped asking that question, right? So there is this difficulty of who is an international student. But for the purpose of the book, I define the term and I say, look, if you, a student has studied, has not yet studied in this academic context, and for the educational purpose of helping them to grapple with the challenges of, you know, the, uh, the American academia, its demand for particular discourses, its uh, demand that you understand particular language or context or uh, communication skills. If you have not been exposed and and experienced, and if you have not developed a level of confidence, then you are international, uh, uh, right? For the purpose of this conversation. Um, so, if if somebody is a, a still in an international status, but the person really doesn't want to align as an international student because they don't need it, that that same kind of support that we recognize as needed by students in transition, whether they're one year into it or three years into, into into the system, then maybe with that support in practice does not, you know, need to worry about that international student who now says, I don't, I don't need this help, right? But for the purpose of the academic support, if the student who already has a green card by by the time they landed in this country because they came through the diversity lottery visa, then they are international. So we might need to take a sort of a stipulative definition uh, as a starting point to talk about it, but the, the, the ideas about how to help these students when they need some help, how to help these students before they are confident and they have they can integrate and they can you know even lead uh, the discourse. That is what I mean by international students. And so in the US, um, we use the word graduate education um, to refer to anything after a four-year bachelor's degree sort of right generally speaking and then that means master's degree and phd and postdoc postdocs often refer to separately as postdoc but you know graduate students are masters and phds including some professional students that are neither masters nor phd and so on so these students graduate students go to separate um, graduate uh programs in, in in separate departments and oftentimes these students um are limited within their disciplines, especially in the sciences, they start their education, uh, graduate education with a, a number of required courses, and then they go into qualified, ex- qualifying exam, and then into a proposal writing for the dissertation, and then the dissertation of writing uh, uh, process. In the process, they are also research assistants and teaching assistants. So there is a lot of professional development that is happening. And that means they need to catch up, you know, by the f- second or third week, they arrive here in the U.S. for a master's or PhD program. They really need to catch up on a lot of issues. They're completely disoriented, need, you know, needing a, a lot more support than simply that one orientation where they give you a packet of, you know, flyers and say, "Go." Right? The student doesn't even know which of the flyers is important, which is not important, or urgent. And that is the landscape in which we're trying to see how can a communication support, language support, writing support, even research support might be able to help the student to ramp up the process of ad- integration and of the, of the process of being able to communicate, being able to present, being able to read, being able to write, right? So as as I list a, uh, in, on my website, my personal site, samsarman.net, um, there is a number of workshops that I design in order to you know, offer uh, to my students and to students in other universities as I visit, um, pro bono, by the way. Um, These are areas that I have identified. And many people go about identifying these unique needs as a result of the gap between how the uh, graduate education is organized. Uh, Many others are looking for common grounds, uh, overlaps, and and seeking to find universal design. And that's the second one is something that I don't understand.
0: The seeking a universal design is something that... uh, Seems not to be so helpful for the international graduate students. Is, it has uh, limit.
1: Like it is useful for yes. like addressing three problems, and then three more remain unaddressed.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It seeks to just get too much done with one bundle, doesn't it? Really.
1: Yeah. I mean, it doesn't look at X and Y. It just looks at the intersection Z, which is great if the intersection is like ninety percent. If the intersection is ten percent, you're just you're just diluted.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, could you maybe cuz this is a really important point this idea of universal design and and, and give it uh, special attention then again once more in the conclusion is there something that you could give us as a even if it was just sort of a generic example of how uh, that that approach can lead to either mini or major disasters? <laughs> Or yeah. if you have a particular case in mind that fits quite well, um, just an illustration for the listeners, perhaps.
1: Yes. So let's say a uh, graduate international student come, comes into writing center or to writing class. And then let's say you assume, you know, you are convinced that because graduate level writing is challenging for the domestic student, you just assume that it is it's better in the interest of the student to create a common ground and to get them together and to help them solve the problem. This is kumbaya, right? Like a romantic uh, uh, view of things. It is possible that the student, the international student has actually done the task of integrating by addressing the issues of understanding terminological difference so they know quiz means quiz, assignment means assignment, response, reading response means reading response, a paper means what? I don't know. So let's say the student has figured out all of these things and, and caught up with the domestic students. Then fine, you're doing your job. Really? Not really, not really. But, but if the student hasn't caught up on all of these matters, and you're not asking the student, you're not paying attention, you're not being noticing, then you have created a disaster. For example, when the, when I first came to the United States, let me give this quick example. I went to a class. It was a social uh, applied, uh, sorry, uh, social linguistics class, and I did not understand the American classroom culture, right? Uh, nobody had told, had told me. I had studied in English my whole life. I had taught English for 13, 14 years. And when I came here, I knew that the American education system was distinct. I knew some of these features. But knowing is different from being put into it, right? So I went to class Thursday evening. The professor came in and she, you know, she, she sat down and she said, What do you think about the readings? And this guy, you know, with a big mohawk in the back, started talking. I think it was in the front, started talking. Like he would speak for 15 minutes straight. And I'm thinking, when will the professor start teaching? And then a lady in the back would just talk a few minutes and then another person. But I was thinking like, these folks haven't really read the text uh, because I happen to have taught that particular text <laughs> as a <laughs> as a professor in a, in a previous country at Tribune University, right, uh, linguistics. And I'm like, when are, when is she going to teach? This is not a good teacher. What are they doing here? Why do they criticize the author without really fully understanding? Turns out after five, six weeks, I'm like, a light bulb went on in my head. And I was like, oh, the professor is not refusing to teach. She's challenging the students to explore these ideas on their own. It's, you know, right about time that they do that. They're not even undergraduate students. They're graduate students. They are scholars. They need to be grappling with these issues. And so I went home, I prepared very well, went to the next Thursday meeting and started talking. Maybe I, of the three hours class, I probably talked for 20 minutes that day. And then I thought, wow, this is how the system is designed and I need to act and I need to perform accordingly. Right. So the student really not understanding how to perform and nobody telling that student how to perform. And the professor goes like, ah, uh, this guy started talking. Right. She was so happy. <laughs> um. And so who is going to make that happen if the student doesn't realize in six weeks? What happened is the student realized that in the third year because they had never had a chance to have this conversation because they were just trying to follow the, you know, the instruction of the professor running the lab. And they never had a chance to really explore the world of communication and, you know, community and, and, you know, culture. Um, So that's that's where, you know, we need to pay attention. We need a lot more people who study and understand international students and their needs. And then we need also change to challenge the people in the mainstream to understand these kinds of simple but significant uh, distinctions that international students are facing. And that is why we need to look at the education system. If we have five hundred thousand international students at the graduate level, in some disciplines, up to seventy percent of graduate students. We can really start looking at the world, at the graduate education world through their lenses rather than this is going cle- to the yeah, opposite the, direction. I
0: mean, this is, this is clearly a, ma- a major issue. I, I mean, you, the, the numbers that you say there are clear, never minding that uh, our universities want to be internationally, want to bring the best minds from all abroad to us. Um, I mean, <laughs> and these are people, never mind that either. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but I, if you could maybe give us a view into some of the techniques, because... Uh, you, your example was was uh, very vivid and made it clear some of the real life problems that an international student would face. But you also make it clear that it's just not a matter of understanding. I mean, you even entered the American educational system having a notion of what goes on. And yet you still, even yourself, ran into such difficulties. What would be a way uh, in, say, that particular area or any other example that comes to mind that you would then be Instructing or uh, transitioning students, what, what would be something that could be done for them? Because it's, it's clearly not going to be just writing up a paper and telling them, this is how the American education system works, uh, behave that way.
1: <laughs> I think one powerful tool would be a back channel conversation of all the allies and advocates of international students from across campus, right? Simply call them to a meeting every semester and say, How is it going? How are you supporting these students? I found that even in universities that did not have any structures, to go back to the initial point, in any well-developed structures, when there were advocates that were connected, networked, they were able to foster student agency, they were able to promote existing programs, they're able to support each other, they're able to make visible what was invisible, they're able to bring actually those some of those students and international students in those places where there's not a lot of service but a lot of attention were able to actually come together, create series of workshops, writing communities, groups, and they met in the basements of churches in order to really, they pretended they were interested in Christianity, but um, not really. Uh, it was a transactional <laughs> relationship between the local evangelicals and the students. Uh, they ate the food, but they talked about their assignments. Um, <laughs> and then they prayed together. Um, I don't think they had the same concerns in their minds. Um, and so I think this kind of you know, gaps that were filled by these amazing uh, you know, religious uh, communities or uh, social communities or cultural communities or students' own um, self-advocacy groups or connections, and especially the informal back-channel advocacy connections of those who work within the structure. So the structures were sustained by ecology uh, rather than structures becoming isolated from the larger ecology, much of which tends to be hidden.
0: This brings us right into uh, two of your general solutions, as you call them, uh, to this idea of universal de- design versus differentiated support. And and you've already used some of the key terms that come up there, advocacy and agency and so on. Uh, perhaps we could just uh, step back and uh, for, the, for the sake of structuring uh, for our listeners, uh, the way that you uh, um, present your research and look at that chapter uh, briefly, the fostering agency as this first general solution that you offer. Mm. Um, maybe you could give us a little bit more into the Pedagogical practices there, um, the exemplary ca- pedagogical practices that you bring up in that particular chapter. Um, I'm thinking of, say, the respect for students' uh, cultural diversity, the attention to challenges. Um, you've listed uh, in a few different places in the book uh, the challenges specific to international graduate students, uh, Look, curricular strategy, and, and mm, other such um, particular uh, practices. Yes. Let me give you a quick example.
1: Let's say you go into a class, and um, whether that's a graduate or undergraduate, and uh, instead of saying, let's say, uh, let's get introduced. Like, let's talk about um, let's, let's say X communication. How do people greet in um, a particular setting in a formal uh, academic setting? If you say, "How do people greet in an academic setting in your local community?" Just add that phrase at the end. What happens is that the Chinese student versus the American student versus the you know Brazilian student you know get to share. Their ideas about how to people within English, uh, in English, how or, or right, um, how people to greet each other formally, but then they by giving them a platform where their ideas uh, can be brought in order to explore will allow many things. One is to uh, by uh, uh, you know setting the terms of engagement, which are not the am my terms, and you are a foreigner, and you're going to engage and learn my on my terms. Instead, as, at least as a starting point, it allows the student to create these different terms of engagement on their own, right? And then from there, they can actually shift to what it is, what is distinct about the American context. See how by comparing, contrasting, they get an opportunity to learn, as well as by bringing up these different terms of engagement, different contexts, they actually get to share what they already know. So you build on what they already know, right? You can tweak any assignments by saying, Adding something, you can tweak any classroom activity. You can tweak any curriculum. Uh, you can tweak any pedagogical or you know academic support program by simply foregrounding that these students bring something, resources with them. These students are, um, you know, these supranational, transnational bodies that are not fully represented, constantly anxious, marginalized, you know, potentially oppressed by policies and laws and and actions, and and, and that foregrounding those strengths, those anxieties, those uh, you know the the needs will allow both the student and the person serving the student to make visible what is invisible. A lot of the the, the it comes boils down to this idea of the, the hidden curriculum. How do you make the hidden curriculum um, visible instead of trying to make it further hidden? And that one approach would serve in, in, in many ways of uh, not only you know, classroom support, but also academic support in the community and and policy and and, and programming.
0: But that demands that as you began our discussion, uh, stepping outside of the ideology of your discipline or stepping um, in a position where your blind spot is no longer blind, you're willing to see what it is that you've been missing all that time.
1: Yeah. And the world is right in front of you. It's not like you have to, you know, the stu- international students right there in front of you. You just have to listen. You just have to look at it from their perspective. You just have to do more research and survey and data collection and talking and focus groups and, um, you know, involving students in leadership positions. Just hire a bunch of international student tutors and you'll see this change of landscape entirely like they did at Ohio State University. It completely changes the dynamic. Right. So it's it's a matter of, uh, you know, making them heard, making them visible as well as their their problems, challenges, and strengths. Um, and, 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 and this also points to the larger landscape in which we really need to look at international students uh, in the interest of the world, not only within the nationalistic economic framing that we have advanced for a long time now, especially since the mid-20th century, we have you know, gradually moved on to international students as an industry, international students as a uh, nationalistic um, national interest issue. It is. It should be in the interest of the nation. Nation. It should be, you know, economically sustainable. Uh, there must be a financial model behind it. But should it be only in the national interest, rather than also in the global interest, in the interest of humanity, in the interest of science, in the interest of discipline, in the interest of the planet? It's not like we cannot chew gum and walk at the same time. And that is what I'm really working on on the in the next book as to how we could have a multi-dimensional theory of international education rather than a very monolithic uh you know acceptance submitting submitting to the forces um of what is that god you know Malak, i think the god of money
0: <laughs> yes yes <laughs> um good uh, the 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 other chapter that i certainly would want to just give a bit of time is um your second general solution that you mentioned there where you bring up advocacy which which you've already given us a brief look at when you talked about the church organizing um Sort of outreach from uh, the university. There was one, there were some wonderful sentences and wonderful ideas in that chapter for me. Um, w- one I just want to pick out uh, almost at random. Uh, the one where, uh, and, and there's so much <laughs> to the listeners, I would say, there's so much good advice in this particular chapter on how to run writing support well. For example, I quote, successful writing support programs cannot afford to be just efficient structures made of space, people, and resources. They must be driven by strong visions. Why visions? Why are we bringing visions back to education?
1: (laughs) For example, if you are serving international students but don't understand the full being of that international student, why did this Chinese kid at the age of 18 Decide to leave home, go 12,000 miles away and pursue education. What does it mean for that person to be in this limbo uh, where there's no a a lot of the political, economic, social uh, rights and conditions of safety and well-being have been suspended, essentially, where the student has to that child of a neighbor too distant, uh, you know, to be to be heard properly, um, not you know some somehow not uh, supported by the current regime of you know a uh, nation based framing of education or framing of of relationship when what, what what does it mean to serve that student it means that you got to be educated about that student you cannot say you came here and therefore you will you will work on my terms it, it, that is not enough we didn't. We don't say that to our next door neighbor's uh, children, right? We didn't say that to students of color. We don't say that to stu- women. We don't say that to disabled students with disability. We don't. But when it comes to um, when it comes to students in, from other countries, we seem to say that, and that means we have adopted and accepted and embraced this nation-based framing that outside of the nation, prejudices are not prejudices, responsibilities are not responsibilities, um, empathies are not empathies. Are are they not? You see what I'm saying? Why does a different uh, a frame of reference serve when it comes to international students? If we were to really self-reflect on these issues, we really need to have a theory of what, you know, what international education is. We need to have a theory of what it means for me to serve a student from China.
0: Great. <laughs> I uh, would like to... Maybe also, somewhat in the interest of the program, because uh, scholarly communication is so interested in writing, uh, just turn a little bit to the idea of writing support uh, in specific, uh, because you say so many fruitful and useful statements about writing support. So much of your research also gives writing support something to think about and something to back up uh, what it should be doing and what it's doing wrong. Uh, for example, in this particular chapter on advocacy, you talk about the extremely impactful writing support and that involves even faculty members faculty members getting involved uh, with maybe not an entirely institutionalized regular sort of program but getting involved with the writing support as much as the students yes how does that how, how is it that that makes sense what does that bring into writing support
1: um, a lot of times especially at the graduate level you know faculty are everything right they are um, assessors, the referees and coaches and judges and everything. So that means what they say, what they do, whether they understand these students, whether they know how to support these students, it makes a make or break difference for these students' success. And that means uh, faculty must be involved. But when it comes to writing support faculty and the writing support staff, I think it is not enough for us to stay in the margins of the programs. Because of this as national artistic capitalistic uh, framing. Um, writing support tends to be seen as this service um, on the margins of the system, only responding to uh, sort of notions of prestige of universities or um, only, only ad- addressing concerns when it is not beneficial, quote unquote, to the university. Right. And in spite of all of the neoliberal uh, 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 and, and, and diversity um, at promoting a culture, there is this underlying discomfort that I, that I expressed throughout the book of, as to why these students are often invisible, why their needs are often, you know, blurred. And therefore, the, the need for these writing support faculty who are advocates of, of, of these students, as well as all other students, but especially for these students' specific and, and additional and unique needs, is because we need to influence policy, we need to influence programming, and we need to understand, and most importantly, understanding of these students uh, on, a, on an institutional level. And that understanding comes from understanding the numbers of students that are going to different programs and states and reasons, right? And where they are, how they're navigating the system within the university, where they are reaching or not reaching available support systems. Um, and therefore, I talk about distributed advocacy, which is you can't really, um, you know, be an advocate in a vacuum, you need to advocate through networks. I talk about advocacy at the centers, well, established structures, advocacy at the gate, where there's a the leverage points where you can make the biggest difference in, in the system. And advocate, and I say, uh, it takes a village, which is with the example, this powerful example from a University of Florida um, uh, program, that you know it, it's about collaboration also. If it is not networked, it, we're not gonna be able to make a difference. And finally, students themselves, must become must be you you know involved and, and as as advocates for themselves too.
0: Thank you very much uh, for your time, and I uh, would just like to close out. If you would just give us a brief uh, look at what you happen to be doing at the moment.
1: Um. Thank you again. Once again, thank you very much for this wonderful conversation. I could go on and on. We could go on and on about this, but um, to wrap up and and to share what I'm doing right now, I started. Um, looking at the data that I um, collected for this book and it's a gigantic amount of data, the book itself does not do justice to the data. And therefore there's, there's work uh, there, there's material there to write, to work on another book. In, indeed, I've started working, um, I have drafted two chapters for another book, uh, building on what I was saying the last few minutes um, as to how can we re-envision um, the landscape of international students and international education. And how a broader, more multidimensional, more diverse, more flexible view um, might actually enhance and improve international education in the interest of humanity, in the interest of nations, but also in the the interest of the world and the advancement and application of knowledge in the world. Um, How we might be able to envision, even within the uh, economic financial uh, uh, landscape of international education now, that so much more could be done if we don't see this only as a business, but much more for, for all of us uh, involved, for our nations but for, and for our world, right? So that's a, a little more philosophical sort of book that I'm um, working on. I might actually include a number of sort of stories, anecdotes, cases, and practical applications along the way. Another book that I'm working on, um, for which I'm actively collecting data right now, is The Emergence of Writing Education in South Asia. Uh, scholars across the world are being asked to publish and re- uh, you know their research, and more frequently. Uh, oftentimes, PhD students are now required to publish a bunch of two, three uh, articles in "quote unquote" international journals before they can, you know, finish their PhD. Um, in the case of India, for example, just in India, uh, those two requirements that you need to have a uh, the two requirements, one, one, you need to have a PhD in order to teach in a college level or university level, and second, you need to publish every year in order to maintain or, or, or pursue your promotion, um, maintain a job and pursue promotion. And that itself has created a disastrous new uh, consequence whereby the, uh, uh, the publication of junk journal journals has skyrocketed, right? And in this landscape, writing support for graduate students is going to you know, address that issue, not only of students struggling to write but also the new knowledge economy across the world, the new demand for greater knowledge production to sustain economies and to run social systems and to advance knowledge within the field and in the profession. And uh, that book is also addressing this larger landscape of writing and research and the need for support and community, um, not only for students, but also working scholars. Uh, So those are the two bigger projects. I'm also working on actually putting ideas to practice. Um, my university recently featured a, a community of writers that I have been organizing both for, inter- work for graduate students to write and finish their dissertation and thesis, and also for faculty members on its homepage. Um, and um, this is a community that you know comes together to write and support each other, especially during the pandemic. And these kinds of writing communities that I am sort of facilitating um, have grown Um, you know, greatly during the pandemic. And those are some of the things that I do. One of the things that I feel is that I have this dilemma between just writing uh, more, doing more research and writing more um, books and articles or actually pausing and slowing down in order to provide service by translating and putting to practice what I learned from these giant projects. Um, I am a little torn and I have a little slowed down a little bit in the last two years since the book came out. But I'm also very happy to see the amount of impact the community is able to make by working together. I just, you know, use the knowledge that I gained as a catalyst, as a, you know, uh, uh, an input, and my own expertise as input to make things happen, you know, in the community among the scholars and the students, and that really embodies the kind of approach that I was talking about. Uh, I didn't want to be a person who studies a problem but does not. Treat the patients, <laughs> right? I, I just want to come back and actually create an ecology of support. And I have, um, you know, a few hundred graduate students have since I finished the book. A few hundred graduate students in my university have um, joined the dissertation and thesis writing boot camp. Um, anybody that is interested can email me. Um, if you you know search Sam Sarma at Stony Brook, um, and I'm happy to share resources um, and sort of handouts and models and ideas Um, there's so much we can do when we simply don't trust the systems to um, sustain all of the needs especially for those that are underserved uh, especially that those for those who transition and uh, straddle between vastly different academic systems and cultures especially during these difficult times Um, yes so these are some of the things that i'm doing trying to translate the research into community building and I'm thinking about a new project, which would be sort of maybe an article in which I will be theorizing and uh, showing, demonstrating how a community-based programming may be a powerful um, method rather than, you know, institutional structure-based programming. Like, how can a community, you know, uh, be a program? How can a community be, uh, you know, serve its own, you know, its own clerical budgetary um uh, uh staff staffing and administrative need without having a clerk or a budget or a staff or administ- administration to it how could community uh, the, the affordances of community uh, you know agency uh, collaboration empathy um, uh, mutuality how could these be sort of undergirding principles for organizing um, academic support systems and uh, uh, knowledge making uh, uh, you know collaborative processes so So these are some of the things that I'm working on um, right, right now.
0: Well, have, having heard that, I, I, I realized I was more right than I knew when I said that uh, graduate studies and graduate students everywhere are lucky to have you in the field. Uh, that's wonderful, the combination of practice and research. Um, I thank you very much. Um, that is uh, Sam Sharma, and his book is Writing Support for International Graduate Students, published by Routledge in 2018. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Sam. Goodbye. That-
1: Thank you very much. I don't know if I deserve that much of a kudos, but I have dedicated, up, yes, um, some time in supporting as well as doing the research and writing because I believe that we must embody, we must practice what we preach. Thank you very much. Very good. Thank you so much for listening.
0: Yes, and uh, goodbye to everyone. And until uh, next time here on Scholarly Communication. Goodbye.